Last week, what you don't know is it was a three-parter, and we went through two parts. <laughs> because this preacher I know can get kind of long-winded at times. No, it was just I had, I had more information than I could bring about. And I probably have more information than I can get through today, but that's fine. We'll just stay here till 2 o'clock. No, we won't. Um, briefly, by way of recap, if you look up at the slides here, uh, we looked at part one, water from a rock. We went all the way back to Exodus chapter 17, and we looked at how the people had whined and complained, contended with Moses, and he said, man, these people are about to stone me. He was not happy when he came before the Lord and said, yeah, they're thirsty. And, and God said, go and take the rod and strike this rock at Horeb, and then water will gush forth from it. Now, Remember, we're talking about a million and a half, two million people here out in the desert. That would have to be a lot of water. I, you know, I, I in the past had a friend that worked for the city, and he talked about how much water the city went, and it was a city of 5,000. And we went through a lot of water. And I think about that times how many to give water for a couple million people. This is significant. This is a significant event. And yet, the water wasn't really the point. It was the people's unbelief that was the point. It says in verse 7 that he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the contention of the children of Israel because they tempted the Lord, saying, is the Lord among us or not? Now, this is in Exodus chapter 17 where God does give them water from the rock. But you know, in Exodus 16, they were hungry. And God gives them bread from heaven. And you would think that they would take maybe a little object lesson from this, that if God's good enough to give us bread, maybe he'll give us water. And so again, their sin was a sin of unbelief. It's it straight up, that's what it was. They didn't believe, they didn't trust that God had this. Interesting, in Exodus 16, we see the bread from heaven. In Exodus 17, we see this water gushing forth from the rock. And in John chapter 6, we see Jesus presenting himself as the fulfillment. I am the bread from heaven. In John chapter 7, we see Jesus saying, hey, come and drink the water I'll give you, and from your innermost being will gush forth torrents of water, living water. And, and the people's response in both was the same, because they said, is the Lord among us or not? In Exodus 17, at the end of verse 7. So the second part we looked at was, is anybody thirsty? And we're just going to cover these quickly so we can get on to what we want to talk about this morning. In John chapter 7, verse 37, on the last day, the great day of the feast, remember we talked about that, the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus stood and cried out saying, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. We looked at that in detail and talked about how from the Feast of Tabernacles, and, and we sort of took a, a side trip and looked at the Feast of Tabernacles being, or Jesus standing up at that feast, being the fulfillment of the water from the rock. Because tabernacles look back on the wilderness wanderings of the children of Israel. And, and then Jesus, at, this, at the perfect opportunity, stood up in the middle of this solemn procession and said, you want to have water to drink? Come to me and drink. Drink the water that I'll give you. And he really fulfills the type there of water from the rock at Horeb. And the people would have been stunned. We talked about that. And so uh, it says that 
in verse 38, that he who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers or torrents of living water. Now, when we talk about living water, that was very, very important to the Jewish mind. Living water had to be running. There are no, and I may have mentioned this before, but there are no mikvahs, a, cerem- a Jewish ceremonial bath where they did their ceremonial cleansing is called a mikvah. It had an inflow of water and an outflow of water. It had to be running. And if you go to the Sea of Galilee, one of the things I noted that I was standing there on the edge of the Sea of Galilee and, and our Messianic Jewish guide said, do you see any mikvahs? And everybody said, no, we haven't seen anything here. And we'd been there for a couple of days. He said, that's because the Sea of Galilee has inflow, the upper Jordan, and it has outflow, the lower Jordan. Interestingly enough, if you go all the way down to where that flows in, it flows into the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea is dead. It has inflow, but it's the lowest place on earth. There is no outflow there. There is absolutely no outflow from the Dead Sea. It's dead. And so it's just a great, I mean, even geographically, we see these things, the the way that they align is remarkable to me. And so he's talking about living water. Verse 39, but this he spoke concerning the Holy Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. And we understand the transaction. You mature believers, you well-studied believers, you know that for Jesus to be glorified would be he would have to go to the cross, his body and his blood, as we just looked at here a moment ago with communion, would be his, his blood would be shed for us. And that through that transaction, now anybody who would simply trust, believe that he did that on their behalves would have salvation, would be saved, would be counted among the sons of God, the children of God, daughters of God. As he said in the beginning of this chapter or or this gospel, he said, to those he gave the right to be children of God. And so so at this point, Jesus hadn't been glorified. We're going to get to that. We're going to come back to that. We're going to circle back to these three verses a little bit later. But part three here is, is the Lord among us or not? Just like what happened in Egypt or I'm in in, uh, the wilderness with the children of Israel when they came out of Egypt, just like what happened there with the rock at Horeb, they're arguing, is the Lord with us or not? You know, we don't know. Some of them are saying, well, he gave us the bread. Some of them probably, no, you know, we're thirsty. And they're contending with Moses. The big division arises among them because, and if they weren't divided, they wouldn't have said, is the Lord with us or not? And so coming forward here in the Gospel of John, we see the same thing. Have you ever noticed that with God's word, there are a handful of principles that are presented a whole bunch of different ways? And we see a lot of the stories uh, where the problem is the same. This is the same problem as was happening back in the days of the children of Israel. The people were simply, it was a sin of unbelief. And that's what was happening. Fred and Dee, would you grab the clipboards on the chairs in front of you and start passing those, please? Uh, Sorry, I forgot to do that before we got started. So the point is, he's here with these people after, at the, the, the sort of the zenith of this feast, and 
he says these words. The people are kind of blown away. They understand what he's doing. A great many of them do, and some of them are confused. And it says in verse 40, Therefore many from the crowd, when they heard this saying, said, Truly, this is the prophet. Now Israel was looking for the prophet. It, in Deuteronomy 18, we see that there's this prophet that comes onto the scene. And so they're doing the same thing that uh, when uh, Jesus asked his guys in Matthew 16, there at Caesarea Philippi, he said, who do men say that, who say that I am? And they say, well, some say a prophet, the prophet. Some say John the Baptist. Some say Elijah and so on. And then he goes, who do you say that I am? And, and we're not going to get into all that. But so they're, they're saying, well, truly, this is the prophet, verse 41. Then others said, this is the Christ. But some said, will the Christ come out of Galilee? Okay, they didn't understand his genealogy. And they were sort of off on this. It says, has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the seed of David and from the town of Bethlehem where David was? Interesting. Jewish tradition in those days was that the Messiah would be a man of mystery. And they really thought he would be the, kind of this mystical guy that would just kind of float onto the scene and then he would begin to fix things for them. And their idea of Messiah, as we know, was terribly off from the, the Messiah that they got. When I was, <laughs> I think about these guys up there and they're all given their opinions, right? Uh, and, and how many times when you talk about spiritual things does, do people start to volunteer opinions? And, and about half the time or more, they're opinions that have no basis in reality. And I understand that Often that's because of people's ignorance, and, and it's, it's, it's an honest ignorance. But there's also a point where people are willfully ignorant, and, and I don't think that, I, that God takes kindly to that. I, I remember when I was in sixth grade, I had, I had the quintessential school marm for a teacher. Uh, she was a woman nearing retirement. Her name was Mrs. Schwab. And she was the type that would wrap your hand with a ruler. Yeah, it was before they started, you know, bringing in children's protective services for such things. And, and, and she, was, she had a quip and a saying for everything. And one of the things that she drilled into my head um, as a sixth grader, he, she would, if somebody was talking, and she did this to all the kids, she'd say, don't open your mouth and let everybody see how little you know. And in a way, that's what's happening with these guys here. They're, they're, everybody's kind of chiming in with their, well, you know, this whole Jesus thing. Well, we see that, you know, he's drink the water and, yeah, and all this stuff. And, yeah, well, Galilee, I, I don't understand, you know, well, the prophet. So there's a division that arises among the people, and there always will be. It says in verse 33 that there's, this division is because of him. And it's essentially, they're saying, is the Lord among us or not? Same thing, different day, different, way different day as what had happened 1,500 years before when the people were with Moses. Verse 44, now some of them wanted to take him, but no one laid hands on him. I love that. I, you know, those are just, some of those passages, it's like, remember in Luke chapter 4 when Jesus, you know, he goes to Nazareth and, and he opens the scroll of Isaiah and he says, you know, uh, uh, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to, you know, to bring sight to the blind and, and to make the lame walk and all this stuff. And, and then he says, he rolls the scroll up, hands it to the attendant, and he, and he sits down and says, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. 
And, and the place just broke loose. The leaders of the synagogue and all the other people, you know, they essentially branded him a heretic on the spot, and they actually took him up to the, the brow of a cliff uh, on the outside of Nazareth, and they were going to throw him down. And it says, and Jesus walked through the midst of them and, and left the city. I mean, it's sort of like that here. He knows that his hour has not come. And what this illustrates to me, it, more than just a fun story, is there is nothing about these narratives, there is nothing about the life of Jesus that is given to chance. They're not going to get him until he's ready to be gotten. And when he goes, and when he is arrested finally at the garden, he, he essentially holds out his hands because he knocks them all on their rear ends, the, all the soldiers, in order to allow them to arrest him. Nothing is left to chance. And gang, I cannot say that without applying it to us. I don't know what you're facing. I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what God is doing in your life. I know that there are challenges in my life. I know that there are question marks out there that I think, wow, Lord, what's going on? How do, how's this going to work out? How's that going to work out? And that there are things that take place. And I have to remember, I have to constantly come back. It's when I, and a good rule of thumb is when I don't understand what's going on, if I don't get what's happening, I go with what I know. And what I know here is Jesus leaves nothing to chance. He didn't in his life and he doesn't in your life. He knows what's happening. He understands our infirmities. He understands the, the circumstances that we're in. And, and it's a place, again, to not go to that place like these people did, like the people in the wilderness did, and say, well, is God with us or not? And, and to be in that place of the sin of unbelief, but to simply trust that he has it. I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what things are going on in your life. I don't know what's happening in your family. I don't know what's happening with your health, I, it, it, with your finances. We could go down the list. But in his economy, nothing is left to chance. So he slips right through the crowd here. And nobody lays hands on him. Verse 45, then the, I love this too. The officers came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to him, why have you not brought him? And the officers answered and said, nobody ever spoke like this man. And, and you know, these guys, these gruff officers, I mean, here they are, you know, they're soldiers, they're sent out, they're dispatched by the religious leaders, go and haul this guy in. We are so sick of him raining on our parade, trampling on our stuff, and challenging our authority. Bring him in. And they go out, and they, you know, Jesus is teaching in the temple, probably in the court of the Gentiles. We've talked about that before. There were these huge porticos that lined the court of the Gentiles, and it would offer shade from the, from the sun. And you could get 100 or 200 people in each of these porticos. They were lined with columns, and it was sort of roofs because it's warm in that climate. And so he was probably teaching in the porticos of the court of the Gentiles. These officers go to arrest him, and it wasn't hard to find Jesus because you'd see, you know, rabbi so-and-so here and rabbi so-and-so here and rabbi so-and-so here. And then this big crowd where Jesus is teaching. And so they go to get him and they get near and they hear him. He's doing a Bible study. That's what he did. He's teaching with authority. And these guys get close enough to hear him and the spirit of God begins to open their ears and to quicken their understanding. And I remember, I remember one time on a Mexico trip, my son was 18 years old. 
And what we would do is we would have these meetings at night, right? And we would ask missionary so-and-so uh, during this couple weeks we were down there, week, whatever it was, I don't remember, it's 10 days, uh, to come up and to share. And my son had never, ever evidenced the gift of teaching. And, and it, was, it was missionary Justin's turn to come and teach that night. And he got up to the podium and he began to speak. And everyone that knew him was like, this isn't that kid Justin. It is. But like these guys, we never heard him speak that way before. And the Spirit of God fell. And he was anointed to teach. And and I, as his dad was going, that's my boy, you know, and I'm, you know, of course I'm proud. But at, the, but at the same time, I look around the room and everybody's just hanging on the things he's sharing because he was evidencing the gift of teaching and that God was using that to communicate his words to those people. And, and I had never heard him, like I said. And I think about these guys, and, and of course my son's not Jesus, but I'm telling you the Spirit of God does work and move and, and, and he uses this format, he calls it the foolishness of preaching, which I love, uh, to communicate his word to his people. And when I saw that happen with my son, I was blown away. He never spoke that way before. He's my boy. He's the one that gets in trouble and I have to tell him to blow his nose and do all this other stuff. And he's speaking with authority, these things of God. So the officers come back, they go, wow, nobody ever spoke like that guy. And, I mean, they were blessed. And the Pharisees answered them and said, Are you also deceived? Well, from their standpoint, he wa they were. Ha have any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed in him? And so they're, they're using, they're doing what the Bible, again, in, in, in Romans, it condemns, to judge ourselves by ourselves. And that's what they're doing. They're saying, well, you know, you must be deceived. None of us are part of his gig. We don't support that, so neither should you, is what they're saying. So they're trying to, they're giving what amounts to is an empty endorsement of themselves. Verse 49, but this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. So, I mean, the spiritual pride in these men, it doesn't take much to see it blatantly being exhibited here. They're saying that these common men, these officers, these other people, the people that are not part of their gig are accursed. And now, I'm going to be fair here. That word accursed is used in the book of Galatians when Paul says that if anybody presents any other gospel than the one I presented to you, let him be accursed. And that word is anathema. That's not this word, okay? They're not, and that means cursed of God. This word is putting a curse on them. It's, it's much lower in, uh, in strength as it is. But, but still, they're, they're being hypocritical. They're being condescending. They're thinking that because they're the learned ones, that the common men, are, they, they just ought to have a curse on themselves. They don't get it. They don't understand. They didn't go to our schools. And this attitude produced a spiritual pride that led them to believe that true understanding rested solely on their own musings because they were so far off from the scripture that it was unbelievable. Well, it was believable because that's where they were and their work was to support their positions, not to support God's word. 
Huge difference, gang. Huge difference. Be sure when you're studying God's word to get the context. Uh, I've said it before and I'll say it again. A text without a context is a con. You gotta be careful. You can take this stuff and try to make it walk on what you want it to say and end up spiritualizing. I have to be careful of that when I'm studying, by the way. There are times where I look at a story and I'll think of an allegorical truth that the story reminds me of, but the story's not saying that. It's called spiritualizing. And I have to be careful not to stray into spiritualizing God's word because it's easy to do. It's easy to, to think, well, that reminds me of so-and-so or such-and-such, and then kind of take it and run down that whole thing with it. And it's not saying that. Be careful. As you study God's word, understand that the context is everything. <laughs> They're talking about people like us. Who are, I mean, by and large, we are not learned people in the deep things of God, but we don't need to have. I mentioned before too that Chuck Smith said, go for all the education you can, but never rely on it. Rely on the Lord. Rely on the Holy Spirit to reveal God's word to you. I remember one time I heard this. I heard the recording actually of this. Um, Chuck Smith was with Greg Laurie. They were on the radio and they were on, on, on the phone doing a phone interview with a professor of religion from UC Berkeley. Okay, yeah, I know, you're laughing. Because you say UC Berkeley, you go as liberal as it gets. But they're on the phone with this, this religion professor and is a PhD. Um, <laughs> and they're talking about the Deutero-Isaiah theory. If you understand what that is, there, there are higher critics. My Bible college director called them buffoons practicing buffoonery. Um, <laughs> but they're higher critics and, and they're saying, well, you know, there were two Isaiahs. Oh, some say three. Oh, Harvey said some say, okay. Well, they were talking about two, anyway. Um, and, and I totally believe that because people come up with all kinds of crazy ideas about trying to explain away the miraculous, supernatural, the prophetic, uh, have a hard time grasping that. And, and, and it's like, and I could just take the rest of our time for that, but I'm not going to. Anyway, they're on the phone with this guy and they're talking about this, the dual Isaiah thing and, and uh, the guy says, there's two Isaiahs. And Chuck Smith, and I'm, I'm listening to this, I heard a recording of it, I wasn't hearing it live. And, and Chuck goes, really? And he said, well, Jesus quoted both at one time in the same verse and called him Isaiah. And this guy, the PhD guy, he says, well, Jesus didn't have the manuscripts and the information that we have now. And Chuck was kind of flabbergasted. I could, I could hear in his voice as I listened to this thing. He says, do you mean to tell me that you know more about the scriptures than Jesus? And the guy said, well, yeah, <laughs> I do. And Chuck said, I'm sorry. I can't talk to somebody who is smarter than Jesus. And he hung up the phone and left Greg Laurie on the phone alone with this guy. The point is, 
These guys are arrogant in their attitude about God's word, and people can become really arrogant about that. And we deal with people at times that think that they have these well-sought-out answers. I know, I remember reading one guy, he said, you know, when I started my ministry, there were, there were over 50 problems with God's word. And now that I've just retired, there's only 17. <laughs> and I'm thinking, how arrogant is that? I mean, it doesn't, it's, this, this thing doesn't revolve around you. These things are applied and they're only discerned. Paul is very clear in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 where he says, you know, these are spiritually discerned. And Jesus is pounding that point home over and over and over again here in the Gospel of John when you know, he will lay out this physical reality and apply it to a spiritual truth, to an invisible truth, an invisible reality. And the people go, ooh, the physical reality, and they get all carried off on that and they never get, they never elevate and we've seen a pattern here, haven't we? In these last seven chapters in John, over and over again, Jesus is dealing with that. And it behooves us to be so careful when it comes to God's word. And I love the fact that Jesus is talking, he's addressing common people and they're getting it. And, and the guys, the educated guys, the guys that really were out to protect their own thing, they're not. And it was because they'd hardened their hearts against the truth. They were willfully pushing back on Jesus. Verse 50, Nicodemus, uh, the guy that came to Jesus by night, one of the, the Sanhedrin, one of the, the rulers, said to, said to them, does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he's doing? That's the most reasonable thing that's being said in this whole dialogue. Really, guys? Are you judging him? I mean... Look at our own law. Look at the things that you're saying that we have to adhere to, and you're breaking that. Kind of like when Jesus said, you say that you're, you believe in Moses, but you're trying to kill me. In other words, isn't one of the commandments, thou shalt not commit murder? And the, the double standard, the hypocrisy of it all is so clear here. And basically Nicodemus is saying, you guys are being hypocritical about this. Verse 52, and they answered him and said, are you also from Galilee? Search and look, for no prophet has arisen out of Galilee. <laughs> and it doesn't say here, but I go, no, of course not. No prophets arisen out of Galilee except for Nahum, Jonah, Elisha, <laughs> and probably others. The Bible tells us, again, that knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Something that's devoid in these men's lives, in this whole dialogue, obviously, is love. They could care less. They could care less about Jesus. They could care less about the people. The thing they cared about, the thing they loved, was themselves. And I'm here to tell you, folks, people do not care how much you know until they know how much you care. There is a time where, and I have many times in the ministry over the years, where I will go to visit someone or uh, the Lord will put upon my heart to call someone. Um, and there's a time to haul out the Bible and to cite scriptures and to quote there's a point, there's a place for that, but it's usually, it's not on the front end. 
It's like with these students with George Fox University. We're not going to show up to help some student move with a Bible in our hand and start you know, trying to walk them through it, the, the plan of salvation. I want to build a relationship with that person. I want them to know how much we care as a church. If we get involved with these students' lives, we want them to know how much we care. Yes, that's a bridge. It's a, there's a place to haul out the Bible. There's a place to share spiritual truth with them. But if all it amounts to is helping them move, well, then we've loved them, haven't we? We've shown them how much we care. And then they can know, they can want to know what we know. That's a really, really important thing for us. Uh, kind of like last week, I had a part four here, but we're not going to do it. <laughs> what I want to do, though, is, is just look at the front end of it. Um, and let's go back. We'll, we'll do the front end of part four. It'll take just a few minutes here. Going back to verse 37. Uh, Jesus says, if anyone thirsts, it, and literally, remember I mentioned last week, you've got to look at the tense here. The tenses in these verses is all important. He says, if anyone is thirsting for me, let him be coming to me. It's a continual present tense. Why is that important? Because drinking from Jesus is not a one-time shot. It's a continual flow. He says in verse 38, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. In other words, drinking this water produces water. That seems kind of weird. That doesn't make sense to our logical brains. So if I drink the water Jesus gives me, all of this water is going to come out, right? Right. It says that he spoke of the Spirit because the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus has not yet been glorified. In other words, he had not yet been stricken so the Spirit could be given to any who would come that the water would come gushing forth. Do you see how this all fits together? This is beautiful. The way that I love the way that God's Word is so intricately linked and it validates itself as we go along. Remember in John chapter 4, Jesus is there at the well with the Samaritan woman, and he says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. All right, let me take that apart, Jesus. You know, that's not quite making sense to me. Your food, that which nourishes you, is to do the will of the Father who sent you and to finish his work. That's your food that nourishes you to do the work. Kind of circular. So drink the water that I offer you, and what will happen is you'll have water. It doesn't make sense in the physical, but it absolutely makes perfect sense in the spiritual. My food is to do the will of him who sent me. My food is to, is to be able to present Christ to a, a lost and screwed up and messed up and dying planet. That's our food. And it nourishes us to do that because the Holy Spirit is in it on both counts. The work of the Holy Spirit is our spiritual nourishment. Verse 39, the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. And I would submit to you, well, 
That was then, and this is now. He has been glorified, and he has been given now. And the question then becomes, what are we doing as far as it relates to the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives? He says, you'll have this torrent of living water. This water will gush forth from your innermost being. Is it? Rivers flow. We are not literally river, rivers, but people walk. And God, in his wonderful sovereign design of how things work in the kingdom, has used that term from Genesis forward. He talks about a walk, to walk according to the Spirit. In Romans 8, 1, it says, There is therefore now, no, now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. In, in verse uh, 4, we see that it says we do not walk according to the spirit or according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So he uses these two things. When we talk about the flesh, we're talking about that old sin nature. We're talking about the nature of Adam that each of us inherited, right? So what he's saying here is those who are in Christ Jesus don't walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. But we do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Interesting, you go back, I, I started going back to see how this word has been used throughout God's word. Enoch, we're talking Genesis 5, it says Enoch walked with God. Noah walked with God. Abraham, God told him, walk blamelessly before me, Abraham. Look at the prophet Micah. He, he exhorts us to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. In Galatians 5 in the New Testament, Paul the Apostle, he, there, he contrasts deeds, the deeds of the flesh, the things you do with the fruit of the Spirit. The things you don't do, but the Spirit does in you. That's why it's called fruit. You, you, you don't see a tree try to push fruit out on the branches. That's kind of silly. Because simply yielding to the Spirit's work in our lives, He will do the work through us, in us, through us. And Paul, again, he admonishes there, walk by the Spirit. So, in summary, again, I, I, I had 10 things. Actually, yeah, we could stick around for 10 more things. That'd be another hour. I'm a wishful thinker. What can I say? But to sum up, life as a Christian is simply cooperating with the Holy Spirit as we daily walk. That's rivers of living water coming forth from us. And, and you know, we could go through, I mean, it's, it's submitting to his lordship day by day. Ah, oh, we've got a couple of minutes. We're going to flash through these slides, and I'm not going to read the scriptures that go with them. <laughs> the first, of course, is walk by the Spirit. The second is to set your mind on the things of the Spirit. How important is that? You know, I used to, as a young Christian, I heard somebody say, don't be so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. And I went, that's bunk. 
that's bunk. I want to be heavenly minded. And I don't care if I'm any earthly good. But I do, but I mean, because the more heavenly minded I am, the more earthly good I am to him. I want to be used. And it may not make sense what he's doing, where he's directing, how he's calling. It made no sense at all to me when the Lord called us here. It was like, really? But it made perfect sense as he bore witness and as he confirmed his call. That's what he does. That's how he works. The Bible says, don't lean to your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him. Oh, I'm going to preach these things. Stop it, John. All right. (laughs) The third thing. Put to death the deeds of the body by the spirit. Simple, right? No, it's a battle. When he talks about put to death the deeds of the body, Verse 13, he says, For if you live it according to the flesh, you'll die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you'll live. The word put to death there is, in the King James, it's mortify. You know what that means? Kill it. Strangle it. Stomp on it. Do whatever you need to do to kill that thing. Make sure that thing's dead. Don't leave it squirming. Dead. (laughs) It's very strong wording in the New Testament. So we put to death the deeds of the body. And the, the body is synonymous with the flesh, which is synonymous with the old nature, the nature of Adam. We don't want that. That's death. Spirit is life, peace. You want to have a peaceful life? Walk by the Spirit. You want to live in rebellion towards God? Maybe try to have one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom? It's not going to work. You will not have peace. And it yields death. Straight up. That's a horrible place to live. Fourth, be led by the Spirit. For as many are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. That's where our will comes into play. We choose. You choose. I choose. Am I going to obey that impulse to shoot my mouth off because somebody said something I don't like? Am I going to obey that impulse for that temptation to to entertain lust or whatever. I mean, I, I don't need to go down a list. You guys are grown-ups. You know what I'm talking about. So he says, be led by the Spirit, not by the flesh, not obeying the lusts of the flesh. Is that easy? No, but he gives us a great recipe. In 2 Corinthians 10, he says, take every thought captive before the throne of Christ and cast down all imaginations, everything that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. He tells us how to go about these things, and I wish I had more time to go through these, but we will get to it when we get to the, the ministry of the Holy Spirit further on in the Gospel of John. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8 has more to say than anybody about the ministry of the Spirit other than the stuff that Jesus puts forth in John 14 through 16. And when we look at that, it's fascinating, fabulous things about the ministry of the Spirit in, in our lives. The fifth thing is know the Father heart of God by the Spirit. I had trouble with this because I had a wicked stepfather. He was evil. And it was tough. I, you know, I, came, I became a Christian in my 20s. And it was like, God's a father? I don't know if I can trust him. He might hurt me. You know, and I had this kind of warped view. But, you, you know, as I raised my kids in the exact opposite way as I was raised, I began to realize how much I loved my kids and how I had their best at, in heart, at, all the time. 
And I thought, okay, I get that now. Thank you, Lord. And it wasn't, you know, I wasn't measuring God by myself. I was just, I finally had a decent example of a, of a dad because I realized, you know, I'm going to step in front of a bus for my kids. It's like dads do. And I began to understand the father heart of God. Hugely important. He reveals himself. He comes to us as a father. Or the spirit within us cries out, Abba, Papa, Daddy. And Jesus cried out for him in that way in the garden. This is good enough for Jesus. Good enough for me. The sixth, the hope in the spirit. The dictionary definition of hope is a feeling of expectation and desire for a certain thing to happen. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. So by faith, we hope. We hope in the resurrection. We hope in heaven. We hope in the fact that he's got our circumstances, his life, or our life is in his hands. Seventh is pray in the spirit. The spirit intercedes with groanings too deep for words. You ever been praying and you just don't know what to pray? You're faced with a dilemma, perhaps a small problem, perhaps a huge one. Or you're so burdened and you're so overwhelmed. I had periods in my life that where I was just so overwhelmed every day for days and days and weeks. And I would just groan. Take courage. God's word tells us that the spirit intercedes for us in those times. And he takes those things and he he, he plumbs the depths of our hearts and comes to the Father and says, this is, this is the prayer of his heart. He doesn't even understand the wording behind it, but this is what's going on. Good stuff, praying in the Spirit. The eighth thing is to be filled with the Spirit. Talked last week about the Spirit's ministry being uh, not a definition, but an experience, Remember? And, and yeah, I like to define things. I like to break things down into bite-sized nuggets and chew on them and then, you know, cast them out there and have other people chew on them and all that. And that's fine. But you've got to realize, as I, as I use the example of my marriage, I, I could have a, a textbook understanding of marriage. I could know all about Ephesians chapter 5. I could know, you know, it's God's will and this is that, this is that, the earthly reflection, the whole deal. And yet, that's different from being married. It's the same thing with the Spirit. He says, experience the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He's available to you. If you know Jesus, he's available to you in his fullness and his gifts. We'll talk about that another time. But his gifts are for today, not just the some gifts. No, I don't believe that. I believe that his gifts are available to us. It's the only way we can get through. He gifts and equips according to his will. He never gives gifts and, and visions in a vacuum. He always gives them for service. Again, I can get off onto that, and we're already running late, so I'm going to hurry up and finish. <laughs> Serve in the Spirit, again, using his gifts, seeing that he's glorified in the midst of our work. There's something for all of us to do. We passed around some clipboards this morning. It's not a head trip for anybody that didn't sign up. But you know we passed around these clipboards? It's because we want, part of my job as your pastor, guys, is to equip the saints for the works of the ministry. I'm not the ministry here. You are. I'm the equipper. And there are other people here that are called to help equip. And, 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 you know, and that's great. 
But this is not a spectator sport. This is a cooperative thing where we all get the privilege to serve the Lord as he wills, not according to our puny little ideas. Sometimes we get hung up on thinking, well, I've got this thing here, and he's only going to use me in the area where I'm gifted. No, don't do that. I used to look at gifting surveys and all that. I don't anymore because he equips the called. He doesn't call the equipped. Very clear there. Understand that. And he may do that and call you to something you have no idea you're stepping out into some area that you don't understand because he wants the glory. And people look and go, John's doing that? (laughs) Wow, what a joke. Yeah, it is, except it's for his glory. So don't shy away from serving the Lord in areas that he may be calling you and you're going, I have not got a clue on how this works. Well, that's great. Let him use you. The last thing is love by the Spirit. Galatians 5, that beautiful couple of verses, 22 and 23, but the fruit of the Spirit is love. And I believe that is the singular fruit of the Spirit, guys, is love. Manifesting in our lives as joy. Love manifesting as peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Paul says against those things there is no law. 1 Corinthians 13 says that love is the greatest gift. So what's the takeaway? Spend time with dad. And let his love flood through you. Drink from the water that he offers. And allow that living water, that water that's alive, not not physical water, that spiritual water, the work of his spirit to manifest in your life in such a way that it's unmistakable that you've been in his presence, that his presence is actually occupying inside of you. From your innermost being will gush forth these things. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. Uh, Thank you for this brief, brief look at the ministry of your spirit. Lord, I pray for each one here that as we yield to the working of your Holy Spirit, we know, Father, that as you say, if we, if we simply ask that you would give us the Holy Spirit and that you would give us the working of your Spirit in us, but also through us as we, as we reach out, as we deal with others, as we perhaps deal with our spouses, as we deal with our friends, as we deal with our families, those that were, whatever it is, Father, we pray that we would simply be disciplined people that we choose to walk in the power of your spirit and not in the flesh, which profits us nothing. So we thank you for this morning. We thank you, Lord, for all that you're doing in us. We thank you for these ministries that, you, that you're bringing to, to life in our church. We pray that you'd be glorified in all of it. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.